So this period of time this afternoon is a uh, period of uh, questions and answers and over the last couple of days or so a number of you have uh, written a number of uh, questions some of those questions arising of course from points that were made in the talks from teachings and practices from areas of interest or concern uh, that you uh, may have so I had an opportunity over the Chai at Ram's beloved Chai shop outside <coughs> to uh, look through the uh, questions as I said earlier a couple of days ago, sort out the easier ones and uh, we'll forget the rest <laughs> and um, again with the questions that sometimes I use all my privileges so what I mean by that is you may have more than one question on a piece of paper I may only answer one of the questions or uh, a part of the question. Sometimes my response to your question uh, bears no relationship to the question. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that I have something else I want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. When you talk about your love life to 95 people, (laughs) is it purely living life fully, letting life live you, intimacy with the flow in total mindfulness, or a momentous lack of awareness? Well, as you asked, I would say, of course, it's neither of those two, and it is a momentous awareness. But anyway, um, in the Dharma world and Dharma teachings, and I'm speaking for those of you who have had quite a long degree of association and connection uh, with Dharma practices, with uh, insight uh, meditation, I have felt and have expressed a number of times the view that some of the very important areas of life are not being addressed adequately nor fully enough. And so I made it clear a couple of days ago that in such areas of as love, intimacy, uh, sexuality, there is very, very little uh, ongoing teachings and practices in this area. A number of you have listened over the years to Buddhist teachers and often, I don't wish to oversimplify it, but quite often the view that gets expressed is uh, keep the the precepts uh, around sexual uh, (coughs) matters, not engaging in sexual assault, rape, violence, um, manipulation, etc. Rightfully and importantly so. And when uh, in meditation practices feelings of romance or sexuality or erotic energies or whatever are rising, one gets the mantra, uh, just watch it and see it come and go. And I feel this is a very much that latter part here, a very inadequate uh, uh, response to some important areas uh, uh, of our life. And I think most of us would agree that religion consistently has been has had great trouble and great difficulty in looking at the areas of sexual energy, uh, romantic life, erotic life, and therefore when something isn't fully appreciated and isn't fully brought out, it tends to be marginalised. And sometimes marginalised to the point that it created, as it did in uh, most of the religions run by men, uh, a disparity in which celibacy was accelerated in its importance and sexual life and intimacy <coughs> was considered as some product of desire in some way or other. And I think it's vitally important that this, this area uh, is explored, that we do give care and attention uh, uh, to it and we speak openly about it. And I don't think it's appropriate for a Dharma teacher 
to uh, tell others uh, or encourage others to speak about their areas of love, romance, uh, uh, intimacy, sexuality, and say, of course, <laughs> I've, trans- I've gone beyond that. <laughs> and, 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 and not speak about it uh, uh, oneself. And I think that the sooner that we find and explore ways to explore uh, and touch upon these, uh, these areas for people who are in relationship at the present time. And there's a tremendous opportunity for those who are to explore non-duality, to go very deep. It's not enough just to have a, lovely as it is, a happy, harmonious, uh, a warm relationship. It can go much deeper than that and particularly in the areas of liberation and non-duality. That takes some cooperation and work. And for for those who may at some point be in a relationship, and some of you will probably be in a relationship by the 10th afternoon, so... (laughs) (laughs) Whether you know it or not. (laughs) All right. Or out of it. <laughs> oh, wicked, wicked. Just to break these old dualisms down of celibacy versus sexuality, etc. Look at that. But with care and love and respect and sensitivity. Not with, not with permissiveness and all this gross activity that goes on. Ends up in <laughs> pornography and all of that. This is way, way, way... Uh, unhealthy and unsatisfactory. Why do we hear so little about uh, sila in this tradition? The word sila, S-I-L-A, it means, um, that often gets translated as morality uh, or ethics, and the tradition, wisely and appropriately to a point, has emphasised the importance of our relationship with others and the relationship of ourselves through the five precepts. That is, to engage in the practice of not engaging in killing or giving support to it. To engage in the practice of not stealing uh, and, (coughs) at a more subtle level, not taking that which hasn't been given. Third, in the area just touched upon, of, of sexuality, showing itself in care and love and respect for another. Fourth one, with regard to speech, not only not engaging in uh, lying, but backbiting, malicious gossip speech, which can be so harmful and so destructive for individuals there. And the fifth one, with regard to oneself, and that is the ethics or the morality in terms of not engaging in the abuse of alcohol and drugs. And the consequences uh, of that in one's personal life and in, the, and in social life uh, as, uh, as well. I think some of us, like myself, who were in the old hippie culture of the late 1960s, who hitchhiked across here to India on the old hippie trail through Turkey, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, etc., and all the dope smoking and all that went along with it. I think if we had known just what that would trigger in terms of this explosion of recreational drugs and all the cost of it, as well as the widespread use of alcohol and the tremendous cost on people's lives and their well-being, I think with the drugs, I think we might have thought twice about what it's come to in 30, 40 years. And Therefore, these areas of ethics do matter a great deal. You will see on the notice board some reminders uh, uh, about that. My concern would be, as with other areas of life, and I've written about this, is how easy it is a person can say, oh, I keep the sila, I keep the five precepts, I keep the ethics. But they're just a small box of ethics. There are many other ethics that matter a great deal which are not actually in that kind of frame. There's the the ethic of commitment to truth. The, uh, there's the ethic of um, living a lifestyle which is sustainable. There's the ethic in terms of our care and relationship to everything that we use and, and making things last. There's, there's, the, there's the ethic of, of love there. All of these are very deep and profound ethics of life. And when the Buddhists 
say, oh, I keep, I'm, I'm ethical, I keep the ethics, I keep the morality, I keep the sila. Actually saying, well, I'm observing this, these five areas. And they end up as rules. And then, then, as we heard with the poem yesterday evening, the judge, the police officer comes in and starts using, as, as happens in religious traditions, using uh, guidelines, it becomes morality, it becomes commandment, it becomes vows, it becomes something which must be accepted, and then it's used as a weapon to judge people. Never intended like that, but that's easily what happens. So it takes an exploration of what, what's a, what's, what is a major ethic of life, and how are we going to live that. And I think we've got to acknowledge the value of the five precepts, but also explore much more deeply than just that. Our deep ethics of life, which need, need our uh, uh, deep concern and exploration. <coughs> what the bleep is enlightenment anyway? Quote unquote, liberation from suffering doesn't really cut it. <laughs> um, little. Uh, Background to this, what the bleep is, a very polite saying is, what the F-U, no, no, yes. <laughs> for those of you who need a translation into a language which you can understand. <coughs> what is interesting, just from a little historical point of view, the word enlightenment is not found in the Buddhist text. Not a Buddhist word. What happened was that a couple of hundred years ago when the scholars came, the, I may have mentioned this a few days ago to you, the, it was the, after the period started of what is now called in the West, rather bizarrely, the Age of Enlightenment. And it was a period, and still represents a period of time of post-belief in God who dispenses reward and punishment and this was the view that was held throughout the entire Middle Ages and then in the age of science and reason came in and a different world view was established at the expense of the belief in God who dispenses reward and punishment that changed things so when the scholars came to study the Buddhist languages, they spoke of Buddha's enlightenment, and most of us, including moi, use the word in, in, you do use the word enlightenment there. And <coughs> the tree, bless it, over there, five minutes walk away uh, uh, from us, that the event under the tree gives credence to it. And rather unfortunately, I would say in the tradition, not only Buddhist tradition, but farther afield, the view is something momentous, with great gravitas, <coughs> must happen to me, so that therefore I shift from an unenlightened state into an enlightened one. And with the account of uh, Siddhartha's Gautama's own description and the momentous <coughs> movement of history that even those who never know any practice have heard of the Buddha's enlightenment, something happened under the tree which had a major impact in the course of human history blah blah, that itself is not, <coughs> not something for us to be concerned is what is enlightenment so the person asking the question says, oh, liberation from suffering doesn't cut it. It's easy to say when one isn't suffering. <laughs> oh, it's so easy, isn't it? But, <coughs> when one is miserable, <coughs> depressed, unhappy, jealous, envious, <coughs> weeping, sorrow, grief, despair, depression, confused, angry, burning up inside, then, liberation from it, the wish for it to finish and be over with, can be pretty strong in a human being. 
when we're outside of the scope, intellectually, we are able to say, oh, it doesn't cut it. But men and women were in a period of overwhelmed with problems and stress and difficulties. In those moments, we want to be free of it. Partly. Second, as I was just speaking to someone earlier today, Dharma teachings, and the beautiful aspect of it, <coughs> is trying to encourage us to s- discover what is true for us, to find that out. And the <coughs> promise, we might say, is that if we really discover what is true and stays steady with the truth, there is something extraordinarily fulfilling about it, in which no other human activity of body, speech and mind can be so fulfilling. <laughs> and so I think sometimes you and I know we can be very fulfilling in one activity or fulfilling for a period in another activity. <laughs> sometimes it's very fulfilling, then it's not fulfilling, and then it's a disaster, whatever it might be. The mood of the relation. I'm not just talking about relationships. <laughs> it could be being in India. It could be travelling. It could be <coughs> meditating. It could be study. It could be so the feeling and the mood of what is fulfilling <coughs> changes, but not with truth. Not with the nature of things. Something extraordinary fulfilling about its discovery, about its uncovery. In a way that whatever you and I do with our hopefully good life of body, speech and mind (coughs) is not so important as this kind of discovery which is fulfilling. Completely fulfilling. And it would seem to some of us that it's genuinely worthwhile taking an interest in that. And as the Buddha said rather wisely and appropriately, never settle for anything less than the best. And the best is to wake up, to be with the truth of things and to realise just how fulfilling it is. What does the word meditation actually mean? Oh dear. Um, it m- its meaning may vary considerably from tradition to tradition, person to person. In this room, with this teaching and uh, practice, it has two or three primary meanings. One meaning is to be mindful in the present moment. That's what it means. So each moment (coughs) you and I are connected with the present moment and we're not expecting nor demanding anything from it. We're just with it for itself. Just with it to be with the breath. Just with it to be with uh, uh, the sensation of the foot with the earth, whatever. Each moment we are connected with the... uh, each moment of mindfulness we are connected with the moment is a moment of meditation. And what we are endeavouring to do is to establish for our welfare and benefit in a way many moments of meditation throughout the day. That includes being here in the hall, walking, standing, it includes going to the toilet, eating the food, washing the, the clothes, morning, noon and night, to really sense <coughs> our connection with the day, with the moment, and possibly discover and realise something extraordinarily fulfilling about it. Because there's no demand on life. And when there are no demands in life, there's an opportunity to realise something extraordinarily fulfilling. Extraordinarily fulfilling. And therefore one expression of what meditation is, is moment to moment. 
another uh, expression of it is the ability to be aware and to really notice clearly what's going on with the moment. <coughs> How do we experience the moment now? What's the, the sense that's taking place? What's the posture? What's the level of awareness and listening? What's the receptivity? So it's a meditation upon what's revealing itself. We meditate on what's revealing itself, both outwardly and, and inwardly. For some, we had an example with the inquiry last night, it's not unusual, anything can become a bit mechanical and habitual, including the process of meditation. So the teachings have stated to us regularly the importance of the reminder for some questioning. What matters? Why is the here and now important? What's worth really seeing clearly? How does love show itself in standing meditation? What is there to be let go of today? Is there anything that I really need to understand? Is there investment in the ideas of the ego? What is there to be seen through? <coughs> what is the freedom when the body is in pain? So these kind of questions and thousands of others help to keep that passion and that aliveness and interest there. Why? Because it's our life. That's why. It's one's life. And who knows what may emerge out of it. Who knows. Tell us more about how you... Oh dear. Tell us more about how you first experienced that which is, quote-unquote, not beyond, present, now, timeless, and beyond description, if you can describe it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it reflects this a bit, back to the uh, uh, earlier point. For some, not for myself, but for some, including Siddhartha, there was clearly a significant changing point. And some of you may have felt, known, realized, experienced that. A particular time and place, wherever it might be. It could be in the nature, it could be on the bus, it could be in the meditation hall, it could be in a communication, it could be <coughs> an inquiry, it could be listening to a satsang, whatever it might be. Something <laughs> touches deeply and there's a significant shift. And the indicator of that shift was some truth or realization or some <coughs> essential discovery takes place. The proof of it is it stays. It has a staying power because truth has a staying power to it. And sometimes on retreats, people will uh, come and uh, say, Oh, Christopher, I had this incredible experience, an extraordinary thing and it's beautiful to listen to and important that there is depths of heart opening and awakening and realizations taking place that they're not something that used to take place, they still take place and they take place in this hall here the potency of it the metal of it is simply that the timeless its discovery is revealed in time. So in other words, if a person can say, I had a very profound, very important experience that really opened up my life, or whatever, and then the person can say, one year later, still speak with the same passion, the same authority of that experience, there's a pretty good sign, well, something deep took place. Some people have wonderful experiences on retreats, 
by the time they get to the nearest chai shop, <laughs> they completely forgotten it, or they're telling everybody about it, and when people have got so bored, then they forget it. It had no depth to it. It just felt like it was really important. And sometimes, with other experiences, there is no feeling, this is important now, there is no feeling which goes with it. One cannot say, plenty of examples in exploration of life, that cannot say there is a time nor a place when something profound happened to me in which I made a transition from being caught in the three fields of time, called past, present and future, to something <coughs> timeless and indestructible. One cannot record any single moment, any single event, like the tree or whatever. And sometimes there's just a kind of natural flowering of understanding that goes on and on in an extraordinaryness. All this is human life in its gradual flowering, shall we say, and with its uh, sudden and significant one. Some it's clearly known and some not known, but it is known now. How do you understand sentences of the Buddha? Oh dear. Like when he said after his awakening, I remembered one, two thousands of lives and happenings that people and other happenings that people remember past uh, lives. <coughs> I, what? All one what one is told from the text. The good man sat under the tree. He went through three stages, primarily under the tree. One was depths of meditation, of calmness and joy. And he realized that could happiness be a real way to waking up, to realization? Second, recollection. So in its classical interpretation, it will be past lives in some sense of physical rebirth, going back, 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 back. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But, I think some of us, for me, maybe for you, that at times, <coughs> we look at back at some of the events in our life, and it seems so far removed from us, it's like a past life. And we say, good, I remember, you know, I often say my past life, I was a reporter, in my past life, I was a m monk, in my past life, that, 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 that. And sometimes we've gone through a whole variety of situations in life, many, many, many of them. They all seem like past lives. It was just the self-forming together in a role, in a function, in a state of mind, whatever. It all seems like past lives. And maybe it's said along and in that uh, spirit. The other is, keeping the doors open here, that as well, in the depths of consciousness, in the way of the makeup of the genetic makeup, a biological personhood uh, as well, there are places of, that consciousness can touch, which has profound image, picture, story emerging out of cellular life, and one has no recollection of it <coughs> in this life. None whatsoever. And it wasn't from some dreadful Hollywood movie or from watching a TV or whatever and experiences can arise spontaneously can arise through <coughs> drugs can arise through meditation which one has clear vivid recollection of experiences of roles of identities which have no connection with this life I think we should keep the doors open Is it normal to have pain in the chest when um, meditating, especially when concentrating on breathing? One person referred to this in a small group today. 
everything in the meditation hall is common. <laughs> that uh, there's nothing unique. I've never heard anything unique in the meditation uh, hall. And sometimes when we are sitting, is this more and we get more subtle and more deeper in touch with ourselves and more present and refined, <coughs> it can happen quite easily. For some in the chest area, there's some pain in the chest. Yeah, quite, quite common phenomena. And when I was in the monastery of Wat China, and the Sudinan who was sitting there, uh, Achantamadro gave us a great deal of encouragement to experience this whole area. Mano Sampasaja Vedana, right? Yeah. The, <laughs> the, uh, the feeling, it's the feeling arising from the contact of the mind. The con- the, we make contact with the feeling. Sometimes, when some painful feeling is arising, uh, uh, there, say in this case in the chest uh, area, it may be indicating that in the heart, not the physical heart, but in the heart, there is something calling for attention. There's some <coughs> pain in the heart, pain in the feeling. And because of the quietness of the meditation, because of the re- receptivity that's been cultivated, and the, the modus of the day, sometimes we touch a rather painful place. And we need just to quietly and gently explore that area, feel that area through, and sometimes to ask ourselves, in my heart life, in my emotional life, is there any area which still needs some understanding and some attention? It may be near past or long distant past. (coughs) And it may, may just be indicating that. So, who is she? (laughs) What is her name? Is there any? No, India. (laughs) Any any light? What's to do with it? Thanks, Adama. Right. Yes, yes. Oh, that God, lights everywhere. Marvelous. <laughs> Enlightenment. You're right. So, who is she? What is her name? And how old is she? <laughs> who is she? Uh, wonderful. <laughs> What's her name? Sonia. How old is she? Would I ask? <laughs> mid-thirties <laughs> and the best question of all could Jaya please do some prayers and mantras for me and for those of us who would like to find a, a, com- a companion um, the person said, there's nothing, quoting me, I said, more or less, it's true, there's nothing wrong with being in a relationship, that it's a great practice of itself. But, she, the writer, she, he, says it only served, it's true, it can, to fan the flames of wanting. That's, it's possible. So, speaking on the one side about the value of uh, being out of relationship and being independent and exploring, and then on the other side speaking about the value of exploration uh, in a relationship and some, as this person said, can listen to this and then just it fan the flames of wanting and then poor Jaya's got to do more pujas (laughs) uh, uh, there but then the person says, rather nice note though I suppose what I said may have increased the number of available men and women on the retreat 
people think, ah, relationship's good. There's potential here. We don't have to go off and, and live in the cave. So, right. Well, together anyway. <laughs> Very bad, all right. <laughs> Coming back to the earlier point uh, with, uh, with this, that the element of <coughs> love must be broad and deep and profound. If it's broad and deep and profound, it's non-dual. If it's non-dual, it's not a matter, to repeat, of either being in a relationship or not being in a relationship. There. And the world of poetry, and uh, uh, Sabana's going to read some poetry uh, this, even, uh, this evening, and sometimes the language of love and uh, romantic poetry can be communicating beautiful and deep truths. But as I say, love must embrace the duality. And it's a great pity that there is sometimes pressure. We can feel it in ourselves about wanting to be in a relationship or being in a relationship. And we forget, it's n that's not the issue. The issue is love and a deep sense of, of love and trusting in that and then trusting in or where it might lead. That, that's the important thing. Um, when someone says a follow-up question, but um, related, could you please talk about romances, that is, the attraction, obsession, attachment that can develop towards another retreatant? <laughs> It's remarkable what goes on in the silence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and how, so I think somebody else said, whatever, 95 people in the hall, etc. And how naturally and all too humanly enough, attention, attention, how do you switch this one? Ah. Attention moves. And feelings of love accompany the attention and there is the appreciation of another it may be just through the eyes that's all one's not even in the small group with the person one hasn't said a word shared a word with the person it's all revealing itself the love and the interest and the attention running to the eyeballs nowhere else no other opportunity <laughs> we hope <laughs> <laughs> there may be some mere contact <coughs> small group sometimes people come to an extra group not because they're interested in, <laughs> in anything that any of the three of us have got to say they, they just want to interest in what the other person has got to say and whether they're enlightened or not so sometimes eyes, eyes and ears come uh, in the appreciation of beauty through the eyes and ears, lovely and fine, and, and uh, why not? Why not? Why not? But the important thing is, can we recognize, as the person said very well and clearly, can we recognize when it goes from appreciation forth, interest in, acknowledgement of, heart's been touched with another, when it goes from that to attachment, uh, being possessive, obsessing about. Then ego has entered into it. Not through seeing beauty, not through the appreciation of, of uh, another woman or another man, not through acknowledgement of her or his presence, not through the romantic feeling that uh, arises and the interest. It is all natural human life. But the shift, sometimes it's gradual and sometimes it's rather quick, when one starts obsessing about this person. When one's constantly looking around for him or her, where he or she might be. Where one's rushing to get into the feud, feud queue right behind this person, <laughs> uh, etc. And there have been a few years, a few times over the years, regularly mentioned, the person's had their plate and their spoon on their plate and behind the person they've got some huge fantasy about 
etc. And they're so excited they can't keep the spoon <laughs> on the plate. And, and, and sometimes you will have noticed, with, especially for those I noticed, who serve the food. They're serving it so mindfully, so mindfully. <laughs> and then she comes along. <laughs> or he comes along. And they get into the rice and the dal and they're like this. Really. <laughs> People are getting sprayed with rice and dal everywhere. <laughs> So if you observe it happening, you know the reason now. This person's totally in love. All right. (laughs) And of course, the the, the two pairs of shoes being together. (laughs) Classic. Classic. It's interpreted as a, a huge cosmic event in the world. <laughs> it's kind of the beginning of closeness and but unfortunately there are probably ten people having the same romance about the same person it's, it's a little difficult all right is I like the spelling. Is impermanent impermanent? Is impermanent impermanent? Good question. Um, yes, definitely. If impermanence is not impermanent, not easy to follow this, if impermanence is not impermanent, then Impermanence is the absolute way things are. Absolutely the way things are. And easily we can have a view through our experiences, through our interpretation, through our knowledge of life. Oh, life is absolutely impermanent. And we can go back, as the good scientists do, a number of billions of years, go back to uh, evolutionary biology and all the adaption of the species to the environment. And these days, lack of adaption, I would say. Uh, all of this is a kind of indicator. We look at our feelings, our thoughts, our life, our body. Yeah. For something to be impermanent, it requires a perception and in the perception that requires, the perception has the view. Something is arising. Something, for whatever length of time, the flicker of the candle flame in and out, or, or a global system. Something is staying and something is passing. This is impermanent. Something is arising, something is staying, and something is passing. And to everyday intention and everyday eyes, the eyes and the experience and the thought do keep confirming impermanence. So naturally one could draw the viewpoint this impermanence is continuous. However, what if we look in a fresh way totally? We might say, could say, the past, whether it's eons back, or just the last word Christopher said, (coughs) is past. It's finished. It, the past, doesn't have any more arising or passing, and therefore (coughs) not having any more arising nor passing, because it's finished, gone. Past cannot re-arise. The future, it also, even in the next split moment, 
doesn't know any arising or staying or passing. How could it? Nowhere to be found this mythological future. Even a split second. Now what? If I'm going to have a rising, staying and passing, I have to have time. I have to have. If I say, oh, in this moment something's arising and passing, <coughs> why? Because this moment went to the next moment. But there ain't no next moment. And there ain't no past moment. If there is, show it to me. Where is it? Show me the past moment. Anybody? Show me the next moment. Anybody? What happened to impermanence? <laughs> if you can't show me the past and you can't show me the future, what happened to it? Oh. Impermanence is impermanent. It's a funny old world. It could leave one with the impression it could leave one with the impression there is only the now. It's been said in Mother India enough times. It's nonsense. <coughs> the eternal now. No truth in it. Once I lean and pick out this moment, then I pick out you and me, us, this moment. Once I picked out this moment, then I assume there was a past <coughs> moment and a, few, a future moment. Once I pick out call it this moment, this now, this here and now. Once I select, then I have an assumption of there is yesterday's last moment and the next moment. If the now was eternal, God, do you know what that means? <coughs> We're in this room forever. <laughs> For some of us, ten days is long enough. <laughs> To be in some eternal now, no thank you, all right, truth is steady, authentic nature of things is steady, truth doesn't come and go, the nature of things doesn't come, come and go, it's good today, tomorrow and yesterday. Right, couple more. How am I doing? Oh, not bad. <clears throat> I find your ideas and Osho's ideas are similar. Oh. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Madame? I wasn't here. You didn't, you didn't write it. All right. <laughs> He's an old Osho one. Right. Um, years and years and many years, must be 30 years ago now, I um, had two meetings with Osho in, who in his past life was called Bhagwan Rajneesh and in the previous life he was called Acharya Rajneesh when I first came to India in 67 he had a little flat in Bombay I remember people going down there in 67 to see him and um, at that time in the mid 1970s in Pune Osho had, or Bhagwan Rajneesh as he was then had uh, started up a whole, some of you in a whole network of uh, workshops and practices, etc, etc. <laughs> and it would start off with dynamic meditations and then one would do some, whatever, Tai Chi's and yoga, etc. And then he said, I, which of course some of us appreciated, that once one's gone through those stages, then one was ready for Vipassana and Zen. Mm -hmm. so please, Subhana, uh, right? And, um, <laughs> and, uh, there, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, interest relative to uh, uh, don't want to tread on your good toes here in the diamond but there was a tremendous amount of what might call the um, sexual exploration going on and I coming to India annually used to hear the stories direct from the sannyasins would come on the retreats, uh, uh, etc. But it's a little bit, given today in a decade or two ago, from my perspective, just speaking personally, a little bit of the <coughs> 1970s and the 1980s. And that 
experimental period which, while having some value to it, also generated quite a lot of pain and suffering for quite a lot of people. And quite often, from my listening in this hall, in one-to-ones, and in the, and in the West, and having many good uh, sannyasi friends, that there wasn't the wisdom in dealing with matters of sexuality in many areas. And because it's such a extraordinary and uh, can be kind of charged any energy in, ver- in various ways, it also requires from all of us a tremendous area of wisdom and, and love. And so exploration and sensitivity and respect in this area must be accompanied with awareness and insight. And sometimes in some of those workshops, <coughs> some very unhealthy, unwise and painful experiences took place for women and men who were actively abused sexually because there wasn't the wisdom to go with it. And I think hopefully our time and our culture and our, explora- our exploration is more mature and more understanding and more insightful than some of those things that went on in Pune. And therefore, I, in response to the person's good question of making a, a distinction between what was and what is. Having said that, I do think uh, with uh, Osher, many things I appreciate and equally many things I don't appreciate, as one thing, that it is important and he had a very valuable role in helping to bring these issues up. I do think there's been a problem, I've said it two or three times now in these uh, areas, but I think <laughs> we can explore this more wisely and creatively and with a deep spiritual sense about it. And I think that's that to me matters. <coughs> a couple more and then I'll uh, call it today. Sorry I haven't been able to answer all your good, uh, good uh, questioning. So one, that's a fair enough question, this one, more on the global level. On opening day you referred to the tsunami and other recent natural and man-made disasters. You likened our day and age to Europe in the 1930s when there was some deep sense of foreboding that something was soon going to go terribly wrong. Isn't this view somewhat apocalyptic? Didn't people of all periods think that theirs was the end time? How is our time and age really different? It's quite true what the person says. There's been a regular feature of human beings to engage in a, a rather apocalyptic view. And I don't want to make claims with regard to the future because it's in the spirit very much of, of the unknown. What one, well, what one can say is, if there's any distinguishing feature, the good services and the good knowledge of serious science is advising and telling us again and again that we have to change because of the influence of our behavior on Mother Earth. (coughs) And that the information is available, it has sound scientific research to it. It is showing the relationship of what human beings are doing to land, water, air, resources, forests, etc. And the consequences of this in every corner of the planet. And I think if there's any distinction to be made between what was and what is, it's a distinction that there is some authentic authority with science which is providing us with serious information. And I think it is important that we take notice of it, and it (coughs) is important that you and I and others look at this very, very carefully. We will not get the support from the politicians because they have a very short-term view, basically, till the next election, or, even more absurd, their place in history. There won't be any history to have a place in unless they change. So if they want a place in history, they better start thinking about future history. So it will be out of the networks that political life today, the serious political life today, is taking place outside of political parties. 
taking place in a completely different dimension. And some of us, including moi, are seriously interested in the exploring of a political dimension <coughs> to the Dharma and in forms and expressions which help to show an important voice. And there are people in this uh, village, Sister Mary sitting over, uh, uh, over there, she was telling me uh, last year about the NGO, Non-Government Organisation Forums. There's a huge network of people actively engaged in the anti-globalisation movement, the peace movements that's uh, uh, taking place, the work on the ground for women's programmes and uh, trainings in the villages here, etc. It's, it's a different kind of political social understanding and this, these voices are really the important voices we waste too much time talking about the Bushes and the Blairs and the Sharams of the world etc it's, it's, it's not where the important things are the important things are is our engagement and linking, linking up with others and finding ways to express something deep and profound about life <coughs> and the uh, person's uh, question is an important question, even if there's no future <coughs> or even if the, the species goes on for hundreds of years let's say, and it's just another apocalyptic message that's been going on for two or three thousand years nevertheless, there's still incredible suffering on this earth there's still terrible waves of unhappiness and sorrow of abuse and exploitation and harm inflicted on men, women and children, animals, land, water and air and resources we have to bring that focus and that love in and that understanding into situations as well. We need to be a global community and let go of this silly identification with the nation state. It's medieval calling oneself English or American <coughs> or Swedish or whatever, whatever uh, or Indian or whatever. It's a silly, silly little label that some silly little people dreamed up centuries ago. We need to drop all, that, or drop all that. We're human beings, we're humanity, <coughs> and we're people of the earth. And that absurd ritual like, it always makes me laugh. You, 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 go, you go to a so-called other country, then you go to this desk, and then they take this little book out of your hand, they put it in front, they look up, they look down, and you go through it. <laughs> I mean, it's an insult to intelligence. To <laughs> Why can't people just be free to roam the earth and not go through all of this us and them situations? It's, it's, it's absurd how we've got it. And we need to move, change and, and find ways with each other and, and, with, and with life to care for life and love it and support it. That's the important thing. That shows some waking up is taking place in us as, as, as a, the human species on this earth. You have to see what's old and tired and worn out and totally irrelevant. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into life. May all beings live an awakened life. <coughs> Thank you one and all for lending an ear. <coughs> and for those who come from uh, outside uh, today, there, and the usual uh, reminder that the uh, retreats here um, run on the dana, on the donations and, and sometimes like with France with our yatras, our uh, walks with there and the Israeli Dharma community did a very bold step a couple of years ago for great credit who made that step to have all their retreat programs all on donation not to charge the daily rate but just to trust and and those kind of steps really express something very beautiful and very, very strong. You know, would just love to see more centres and more communities like we do here in uh, India and uh, in Israel with the walks in France and other events to uh, explore the trust of donations and retreats and workshops all working together, running, running in, in, that, in that way. Five past five. 25 minutes further sitting or <coughs> standing <coughs> meditation tea at uh, 5.30 and uh, be happy <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.